Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the system is broken. We hear that so many times. Do we find ourselves where we are because of our politicians and political parties or because of the system in which we're asking them to operate? COVID testing coming to Hamilton Pharmacies. We'll give you the details. And how do you tell if your kid has the flu, the common cold, seasonal allergies, or COVID-19? Experts are talking about removing some of the screening measures off the COVID-19 list that sends your kids home. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. How you doing? Not good. How's the light feel? Not good. You ready? Yep. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Week number 28 of a global pandemic. Day number three of me and my cast. I'm going to spend the weekend enjoying both. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Are you okay? Want to hand out the door there? He's really picking up speed on those things. Uh, it's almost to a fast pace, fast walk there. Uh, slow jog, you might say. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1216. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air as we wind up week number 28 of uh, the COVID-19 global pandemic. Uh, it was interesting. You know, we're all living through COVID-19 and, and we're hearing a lot of the same messaging over and over again and and wearing a mask and all the things that we have to do. And and uh, another one of the scenarios that we're always hearing is people are, are happy that different levels of government are working together, different political stripes are working together. And I was watching something last night and a parent uh, who they had a clip of on the news said something like, uh, the system is broken. And how many times have we heard the system is broken? I mean, it's, but what does that mean? What does it, what does it entail? And I think what COVID-19 has done is because it's such uh, uh, an, uh, an international uh, disease that has affected virtually everybody in every corner of the planet and every industry, every walk of life, it has affected. Uh, and, you know, we can look at this in Canada alone, uh, how we've implemented back to school, how we're implementing testing, uh, and then I guess in the near future, hopefully a vaccine for all of this. And as you look across the country, it doesn't matter what the political stripe is, doesn't matter who's in power, doesn't matter what the level of government is, the problems are all the same. And we've sat here for several weeks and listened to people try to make this political and, and try to hammer, for example, the, uh, the premier and say, uh, you know, we're, 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 how come we're in this testing scenario now? You know, uh, one day there's nobody getting tested. The next day there's everybody getting tested and was getting hammered nonstop because we weren't ready. We weren't ready. And then all of a sudden the prime minister gives his throne speech and then he starts getting attacked saying, you know, where was the, you know, Health Canada hasn't approved this fast testing. Why is this fast testing not being approved? That's why there's so much backlog across the country in the various provinces with various political parties. And, you know, this statement that we heard the system is broken finally resonated with me in the sense that this has nothing to do with who the leader of the day is. This has nothing to do with what the political party of the day is. This has nothing to do whether it's municipal, provincial, or federal politics. This is the system that that that, that operates, that runs all of these programs. And, you know, whether it's getting testing done, as we heard the Premier say at the beginning, I can't understand why this just isn't getting done. What it has shown is government is very big, fat, and not nimble, not able to react to what the world is offering it. It's very slow, very lethargic, and there's reasons for that, but it's just got layered down and layered down and layered down in bureaucracy. When we need a decision made and something done quickly, it's impossible, no matter if it's a conservative leader, uh, a liberal leader, or an NDP leader, it's impossible to move this forward. And a great example of this is the Ontario license plate fiasco, where everybody jumped on Doug Ford because his 
his priority was changing a license plate. Well, you want to rebrand the province, that's one thing, and we can debate that till the cows come home. But do you think it's Doug Ford that actually goes downstairs, looks at the actual license plates, makes sure that they reflect at night? No, there's a department that does that. Where the hell were they? Same thing, and the same that we have with a license plate under Doug Ford. I've got one in my car right now that was issued during the Kathleen Wynne government, and its letters are all falling off. So what the hell is wrong with the licensing department that they can't give Premier Wynne a license plate where the numbers don't and the letters don't fall off, or Premier Ford one that even glows in the dark? It's the system. Nothing gets done. Nothing happens. We've created this juggernaut that is just stuck in quicksand. And all we do is blame the political party of the day. It's not the political party of the day, and it's not the employees that are running these services. It's the way it is all set up. That's what needs to change. And COVID-19 has exposed this. No matter what the political party is, no matter who's screaming at what, the point is we're in the situation we are now where somehow we can't get fast, fast approval of testing or uh, approval of a fast testing method. So, again... It's the system that's broken. Are we relying on the wrong people to fix this? Let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman of Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, and he is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Well, Scott, you just got me on the way to the strip joint. I was trying to get the last <laughs> answer, you know, before Doug Ford shuts it down on me. Ah, what a day. Now, is there a particular establishment where all the politicians in Ottawa love to go? Well, there, there are, funny, there are two in, in the downtown area. One of them is right next to a well, uh, a large government department. As I recall, uh, as I was in a, a neighboring building, it used to get a ton of lunchtime traffic. There is another, a little further downtown, well, you will we'll remember the name, uh, Patrick Brezzo, the well-known senator who got himself in trouble. He used yep. to be uh, a, bar, a door manager there, and there used to be a very famous uh, football player who came and played in Ottawa who had been in the NFL who frequented the place often, and you would knew, know he was there because his car would be out front, and he was a hard fellow to miss. So if you do go to those establishments in Ottawa, most people <laughs> will know that you have been there, but not today. Yeah, I can imagine. All right, it's a different world there, isn't it? Uh, you heard me babble on at the beginning of all of this. I thought and, you were insightful, my friend. But, you know, and again, you know, how many times have we heard the system is broken? And there was something like just the way this parent set it up. And, and he, he set it up in such a way nobody knows, seems to know what's going on. Nobody seems to be able to move this juggernaut, which we call government, the public service, the civil service. So is it the leader? Is it the party of the day? Or is it that? huge system we call government why can't we fix that well there's an old french philosopher now dead called michel foucault and he used to talk about things as structures and he wrote a fascinating book called uh, the prison and basically his overriding theory was that the structure gets so big so in your case the system gets so big that it's that system and structure that drives behavior doesn't matter who the inmates are or who the warden of the prison is Mm -hmm. Because you built this thing, people only know how to act within it. And that's what we're seeing happen now, right? I mean, as you say, I don't. it's not the fault of any one government. Um, they're trying, you know, in different jurisdictions, they're trying the best. In the past, they've tried their best. But in, in healthcare, there's whole other structures and systems which makes it very difficult. And we've built in Canada a healthcare system that you know was is designed to deal with um, with different illnesses and and deal with the management of those illnesses we don't have an advanced and this is not a criticism again public health officials of a forward-looking public health system that uh, can respond to what they're being asked to respond to now i use the example of the ontario license plate fiasco yeah. and to me this is a much smaller example all that COVID 19 is a much greater example of this that involves everybody you know everybody jumped on the premier for wanting to change the license plate and again you can debate that till the cows come home but as if it was his fault 
that the thing didn't glow in the dark. Meanwhile, the license plates for the last 10, 20 years, the letters have been falling off. So to me, that is a perfect example. Who the hell is running the licensing system? Why can't this be done? It certainly has nothing to do with the political party or the leader of the day. No, that would be a procurement challenge, right? And then so if you want to change that quickly as a politician, it's hard to do and not be accused of political interference because you have an established practice and rules that govern that practice and how you buy it. And if if you have license plates that fall off or don't glow in the dark the right way, then you have to go through a dispute settlement mechanism that probably exists in the procurement contract for all of that. It's not like running a restaurant, which is a challenging thing to do in the best of times right now when you have to, you know, move and be nimble in a quick, a quick, do I buy uh, heaters for a patio that I want to keep open longer? Because if I don't, I, I, I don't stay open. You can do that quickly if you're a restaurant owner. You can't do that if you're in government. So is can you change something like this? Is it just too big of a structure to alter or change in any way? You can change it, but it's not going to happen quickly. And then with procurement, right, and and policy, uh, you still want to have some accountability and and oversight. And all the stories that we've seen in the past about procurements gone wrong have only ever led to new regulations that look at procurement, uh, more procurement rules and oversight, which sometimes uh, slow things down further. Uh, You can blow the whole system up and redesign it, but that's not super practical either at the moment. So you've seen governments move to try and create private-public partnerships in hopes that doing that, different bodies that they create will be able to move faster. Uh, You know, is that something that that happens here? I I can say this because I work with some companies in this sector uh, I know the, the the government will have made some bad choices around procurement when all is said and done of PPE, um, but they've been able to move quickly to you know get things Canadians need. But the reckoning will come when the things they got wrong get uh, get uh, reflected upon by the public, and that will be the focus as opposed to what they got right. So we also have to learn as a public, as a media. Uh, and as an opposition politician, to look at the broader context of things. So, you know, did the government get all the buying of PPE right right now? Probably not. They made some mistakes. Yes, there should be scrutiny. But let's not overreact from a legislative perspective when we get to that that juncture later on down the road. We have certainly seen, and, and you know, many have said at the beginning of this pandemic, boy, I can't wait till it gets back to normal. Then you realize there is no normal, and there will be a new normal coming out the other end of this because you cannot do what we have just done for the 28 weeks we've done it and come out the other end, oh, like nothing ever happened. So COVID-19 has made us all change. Will this make government change? Will this make government more nimble, despite who is running it? For a while, but it's like anything else, right? Um, Something else will come up and it'll get forgotten about. I mean, the complaint that was levied about public health and when this crisis started was, well, we not invested enough in it. I think the criticism was laid at the Harper government by the liberals saying, hey, they, they let it dwindle. And there may be merit to all of that. So now we'll, you know, focus heavily on public health over the next number of years. But hopefully they will be doing their jobs and and protecting us as best they can. And if nothing happens for 20 years, does some other politician come along and say or government come along and say, hey, I need to bring in austerity measures. This is a department I will focus on on a go forward basis. So, you know, we do tend to repeat the mistakes of the past and that gets us in trouble. Has this not exposed all of this? And, you know, because, again, people have a tendency to take sides when something bad. Well, you know, it's that guy. It's that girl. It's that party. It's this party. But but really, am I accurate in saying it's not the politician? It's the process in which they have to operate. Yeah, um, but again, people have short-term memories, and we will eventually get back to normal, and we'll forget a lot of things related to all of this until we have to deal with it again. So much of our life, our, you know, we have complex systems that don't respond to the immediate needs of our of, of our well-being, but so much of our daily life is dealt with, it is about focusing on immediate needs. Government doesn't do very well with immediate needs. I mean, look at how long governments have been trying to per, per, uh, perfect their online services. Go back to the whole notion of when CERB got created, um, the emergency response benefit, and they couldn't run it through the 
um, the employment insurance program because it wasn't built for that, right? Thanks be to God, CRA, a revenue agency actually did something that wasn't taking money away from Canadians and was able to get it out the door. So there's some good that's learned in all of that. But did we have to wait to, a, I guess we had to wait till a pandemic until we got better at uh, servicing Canadians quickly when they needed it money. You bring it, you know, you, you said, and I might have, I made a mixture of words up here, but something basically like government doesn't do well with immediate needs. Yeah. That government isn't reflective of today's society because not it will not go back to the way that it was. It will only move forward as we get through this pandemic. So basically what we have is a government structure that is not working for Canadians because it simply is not nimble enough. No, it's not nimble enough. And, and again, there, there have been lots of governments who tried to digitize government because that's become the key word for, uh, for efficiency and speed because everything else we want in our lives, we can sit on our phones and, and get it, right? Um, but the government, you know, the government is not Amazon. The, the government is not Uber Eats. Um, uh, and it's a long way from providing the speed of service and effectiveness of service of those two particular entities. I don't think anybody expects the private sector, but I think they expect more than what they're getting, simply because most Canadians are doing more than the government is on a day-to-day basis, especially around technology. Is it because government is too big? Is it because these departments, there's just too many people there? I, you know, there's a bit of that, but it's also just the process and the structures, right, that are that are 20 or 30 years behind how everything else works, and 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 the hierarchies that that exist as a consequence of those process and structures. So, uh, you know, government approval processes and 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 all of that, and some of them which which should be rigid and, and thorough, aren't. Built are built the same way corporate or not-for-profit uh, approval processes are. Because and and look, that's uh, we the we charity scandal is a great example of all of that. They're probably going to make them more intense now. They they took a flyer or they were convinced to take a flyer on we and look how badly that went. That when something like that happens, government officials, non-elected, become much more cautious. So you instill a greater culture of caution when there are big mistakes. So being having risk averse um, employees can be good, but sometimes you need to encourage a bit of risk taking. You don't sound very optimistic about this, Tim. And then that being <laughs> well, changed, Sky, and, and you, it's obvious because this trip joint. I mean, you know, no, it's not that I'm not optimistic. Uh, maybe I'm cranky uh, today, uh, uh, but oh, man. it's just been. It's, Look, uh, everything, government, the, the word to describe government change or phrase is snail's pace or incremental to be more diplomatic. So in other words, you can't say change in government in the same sentence. Is that what you're telling us? Uh, unless you're, uh, un- <laughs> unless you're writing a policy where you're talking about change, but in reality, it doesn't happen that quickly. So what, like everybody has to learn from this, Tim, what are we going to learn from this again? And, and, you know, uh, I think it's wrong to blame each political party. I think it's just the structure that they all have to operate in. Um, how, how do we, again, I can't see us coming out of COVID-19 and not changing this. Well, I think there, there, there will be good examples that come out of it. So I talked about the bad, but on the procurement side, I've seen some good examples. So, and the CRA example I used, I think is a good example where credit to them, they were able to get up a, a tool that has kept millions of Canadians from the poverty lines. So is what they learned in creating the tools to distribute mm-hmm. CERB, something that can be brought forward in, in other ways. What was it about that that made it work? What has it been about, um, you know, the ability to procure quip, equipment quickly that has worked? So I think you have to go and look at what what has worked and how that can be applied in other areas of governance. All right. Uh, just to get an update on the the strip joints remain closed, by the way, Tim. But alcohol stopped being served at 11. The establishment will close by uh, 12 midnight. We'll get confirmation on all of this coming up minutes from now. Tim Powers has been with us. Tim, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, buddy. Bye. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just uh, to recap what uh, Premier Doug Ford said in his daily news conference today, some changes to uh, some of the restrictions that are going on. Effective today at midnight, all bars and restaurants will be only permitted to remain open until midnight. All adult entertainment clubs will be closed right across the province. All businesses and organizations will be required to implement screening procedures for their workers. And tomorrow, going forward, restaurants and bars must stop serving alcohol at 11 p.m. and close their establishments by midnight, except takeout service or delivery. Uh, that is the latest as uh, we reach 409 new cases, but no deaths today. All right. Uh, one day, nobody's getting tested. The next day, everybody and their mother is getting tested. And we obviously know what's happened. It overflow lines, big lines. And the problem, we're just not able to process this stuff fast enough. Um, and as a result of that, we're seeing pharmacies now uh, across the province opening up in order to help alleviate uh, some of the long lineups that we're seeing in testing uh, sites across uh, the province uh, as a result of this spike. To talk more about all of this, Phil Hauser is with us. Hauser's Pharmacy and Home Health Care right here in the Hammer and is with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, absolutely, Scott. Thanks for having me on. So first of all, tell everybody where you are and how you guys are involved here. Uh, well, we're at uh, 1010 Upper Wentworth, uh, just across from CF Lime Ridge. Uh, we're involved as advocates for um, pharmacy to be able to get uh, COVID testing. Uh, and as you, as you mentioned, you know, with everybody uh, and a lot more testing needing to happen, you know, it's really pharmacy and pharmacists to the rescue uh, to be able to alleviate some of these long lines that we're seeing. So have you started? Uh, did you start today? What is the process? How has this changed your regular schedule of, of operating your store? Well, right now, uh, it's still in a, a beta testing format. We, it's been rolled out to 60 pharmacies uh, in hotspot areas in Toronto and Peel and Ottawa. And um, with pharmacy, it's something that we need to make sure that we get it right. Uh, we need to make sure that there's no uh, added... Um, risk for our patients and that uh, the pharmacies are set up to be able to uh, handle any influx of patients. Now, this is right on the back of uh, the start of the flu shot season. So uh, pharmacies are already ramping up for increased capacity. So we're very excited at the the prospect of doing this. Our timelines to be able to start it are going to depend on the individual pharmacy. So, and I understand these, the whole idea behind the pharmacies is to get people who, uh, to cover the more asymptomatic uh, category as opposed to those that are systematic. Is that accurate? That's correct. Yeah. If, if you are showing symptoms, we don't want you to come into the pharmacy. We still want you to go to the testing centers that are available. But for asymptomatic testing, for people that need the test to be able to return to work because of potential exposure, that's where we're feeling that pharmacy can really uh, carry a lot of weight. So what is the protocol now if somebody wants to get a, uh, a, a, a test at Hauser's Pharmacy? Well, right now, uh, the COVID testing is not available in Hamilton uh, through pharmacies, but we're expecting that very shortly. Any idea when that is? Unfortunately, uh, it's not. Uh, if it was up to me, we'd be doing it yesterday. You know, at Hazard's right. Pharmacy, we love to bring on new services and we love to be able to give our patients everything that we possibly can. Um, but right now, we're kind of at the, the back and call of the, the Ministry of Health. Uh, and as, those, uh, as we get those procedures right across pharmacy, uh, you'll see it open up across Ontario. So would it be safe to say by next week? Ooh, if you're asking me to put money on these things, I don't yeah, know if I want to yeah. be a gambling man, but I can tell you as soon as you, uh, as soon as we got it, you guys will be the first to know. Uh, certainly we'll put it on our website. We'll advertise it in our store. I'll probably be out there with a big sign, uh, spinning it, uh, getting people in if they need to. <laughs> so, uh, obviously the, uh, the premier said today that, uh, as you said, the initial pharmacies are opened up in the hot spots, but southwestern Ontario, Niagara, down around there, uh, we'll see these coming online uh, uh, very shortly next week. How does this change how you operate your store? Is this a separate part to it? How will it be done? Well, you know, pharmacies and pharmacists are trained in infectious disease. 
Um, we've handled patients uh, with complicated uh, disease states and uh, certainly with infect- other infectious disease, and, and we're well prepared for you know flu season and to, to mitigate and. You know, over the last six months, a lot of pharmacies have stepped up and and been there for their patients by uh, making sure that, you know, they're presenting a safe environment. And that's exactly what we've done at Hauser's. I'm so proud of my staff for for sticking through this pandemic and all the hard work that they've done. Um, I don't see a lot of change in the way that we handle our workflow and the way that uh, we'll handle patients that come in. Um, We'll do a lot of, uh, like, online and pre-screening of patients, uh, particularly for COVID. Uh, but beyond that, our pharmacies are geared and ready to be able to handle the capacity. Phil, would it be up to the individual pharmacy whether they want to be a part of this or not? Are there some, are there some that are eligible, some that are not? How does that work? Every pharmacy, from my understanding, will have an opportunity to choose to offer these services, much the same way that they can choose to offer flu shots. I expect, uh, with my profession and the, the pharmacists that I know in the Hamilton and Niagara, uh, in the Haldeman areas, um, that we've got a, a great group of pharmacies and a great group of uh, pharmacists that would be willing to take on the extra role uh, to be able to support the people here. And certainly at Hauser's, we're, we're here to support Hamilton. We're here to support Niagara. We're here to support our hometowns. So will you have to hire more staff for this, Phil? Um, that may happen. It will uh, depend on what we see in terms of you know, our lineups and uh, how many people access the service. I can see that certainly in some of our major centers. Uh, within Niagara and Hamilton, uh, but right now we have we have the capacity to, uh, as we anticipate, you know, potential exposures to COVID. Uh, my stores are are well staffed with trained uh, trained professionals to be able to take care of it. And will these tests be free at pharmacies? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So uh, at this point, you're in a holding pattern, waiting to see as that uh, initial uh, crop of pharmacies gets expanded, and hopefully, no pun intended, you're in the second wave of that. Is that what you're hoping for, Phil? Absolutely. We're going to be front and center. We've uh, we've not shied away from helping any of our patients, no matter how complicated, and we fully expect to be on the front lines, uh, just as we have for the last six months. So uh, we're, we welcome the opportunity to do new testing. Uh, you know, the full government has talked about pharmacies potentially being able to do some prescribing as well. Uh, and with the, the flu shots coming on board, it's a, it's a different look to pharmacies than we've seen in the last 10 or 15 years. Is this a, one more question and then I'll let you go, uh, Phil. Is, is this the same test that they would be administering at a test site? I'm hearing this is an easier test, not a, a less evasive test. That's correct. I think the, uh, the test is meant to go not so far intranasally. Um, and we're certainly waiting on Health Canada to see if there are more tests that we're going to be able to offer. You know, there's um, a lot of talk around the saliva-based test and, and whatnot. So if that becomes available, certainly pharmacies are going to be jumping on board to offer it. All right, Phil Hauser has been with us, Hauser's Pharmacy and Home Healthcare up on the mountain right across from Lime Ridge, uh, preparing and are ready for when government gives them the nod to uh, start testing people in the hammer. Phil, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Be well to you and your staff. Scott, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, for anybody that uh, wants to know when and if these tests are available, I would uh, recommend that they go to our website or uh, follow us on Twitter or, uh, or Facebook. And as soon as we know, we'll be putting it out there and we'll be ready to go. Thanks so much. All right, Phil Hauser, Hauser's Pharmacy and Home Healthcare. How big of an impact is the second wave? Are we in a second wave? How does this affect things moving forward, whether it's Halloween? Although I did see a really neat, uh, a really neat video of, a, of an inventive father who's sort of put one of, it looks like a giant uh, um, paper towel tube or toilet paper tube. And it, he's got like a, a four or five step veranda there and he's fastened this to his, uh, to the railing. And I guess he just stands up at the top and the kids put their bucket out and he just drops the candy and it fires right into uh, the kids' uh, containers from, you know, I'm assuming a safe two meters. But what about Thanksgiving? What about Christmas? Uh, to talk more about all of this, Dr. Isaac Bogosh is with a staff physician, general internal medicine and infectious, uh, and infectious disease associate professor, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, I'm doing okay. How about you? I'm, I'm doing okay. What the heck? We're getting through it. 28 weeks. We're starting to figure out the norm by now anyway. Here's hoping. Um, so your thoughts today on the tightening up uh, of, although uh, be it gradually, restrictions, uh, restaurants and, and bars and such, stopping alcohol at 11 and uh, closing the doors by midnight, strip clubs closed. Your thoughts? 
I like it. I think it's a smart plan. I think it provides incremental safety. I think it's obviously not a silver bullet. It's not going to take care of every one of our issues, but this just adds incremental safety. And if you sort of look at the different measures that are being taken, we've sort of seen uh, some changes and updates to policy regarding testing. We've seen some updates in policy regarding establishments that we know are involved with uh, outbreaks. And this is, it's all, you know, shows that there's just some things that are actually being done that will, will likely lead to fewer outbreaks and fewer transmissions in, in high-risk settings. So uh, one thing I've noticed, and many people are talking about second wave and all the semantics and what have you. Um, obviously, we're in uh, 28 weeks of this now, and I'm going, I'm gauging that by the, you know, the kids in March break and when that all ended. Uh, obviously, the tone different then. We had no idea what we were involved in. We saw the cases uh, skyrocketing, but also deaths. I'm looking back at uh, uh, some of my past notes, and when would this have been? Uh, May, uh, in and around May, 399 new cases. Uh, so again, hovering around 400, uh, mm-hmm. uh, May 29th, 344 new cases, but 41 dead, uh, 19 deaths the next day. Uh, the day before that, we were at uh, 17 deaths and then back up to 30 or so, um, you know, as, as things progress. The big difference that I'm seeing in this wave, if you want to call it that, and the other is although we are see- certainly seeing the numbers speak, uh, spark up, sorry, spike up to over 400, we don't seem to be seeing the deaths. What does that say? Okay, there's two points here that are slightly nuanced but important. Back in May, we did not have the same capacity for diagnostic testing. We were doing, I'm just going to make up a number here, but I think it was around 2,000 to 5,000-ish tests per day. We hadn't started to really boost our test capacity. Now we're doing about 30-something thousand tests per day. We're seeing more of the iceberg. We're we're not just seeing the tip of the iceberg. We're seeing more of the iceberg. Now, that's not what I'm not saying here. I'm not saying that the 400 cases we're seeing now is nothing. I'm not saying that. It's important. It's bad. There's clear arrows pointing in the wrong direction. I'm just saying we have a better understanding of what the ground truth is. Whereas those 400 we were seeing back in May was probably there was probably significantly more cases uh, than that uh, than that what that 400 suggested. Whereas now, when we're seeing 400 cases, we're probably seeing probably close to or closer to the ground truth. So that's point one. Point two is we know that most of these cases, depending on which region you're in, uh, about 60 something percent of new cases are in people in their 20s. We know people in their 20s just don't get that sick. Some do, but not many. Most of them just have uh, feel mildly unwell and then they get better. Of course, the dangerous thing here is that this is such a contagious infection that it does not stay within one age group or one geographic location for long. If there's no if there's no control measures in place, it'll spread into older age groups and spread to new geographic settings. And that's exactly what we're seeing now. We're starting to see this spread into older age groups slowly, but it's happening. And we are starting to see a rise in hospitalizations. It's a small but real rise in the hospitalizations for COVID-19 in the province. So arrows are not pointing in the right direction. And that's why it's important that the province did what it did. It, it altered or did a little pivot on the diagnostic testing, smart move. And today they made that pivot and, uh, uh, you know, really some protocols and guidance on uh, restaurants, bars, and strip clubs. Again, also smart move. We know those are high-yield places, and we don't have to learn from our own mistakes. We can learn from the mistakes of others and the global experience. We know that these are places that are, are very prone to outbreaks. So I, I'm pretty happy with that, with what they did today. You were talking about how what health officials have, have said that the majority of these cases between 60 and 70 percent are those under the age of 40. We remember the first wave of this, that it was just decimating seniors' homes, long-term care, that sort of thing. How key is it to keeping it out of those homes? We seem to be doing it at this point. Yeah, I, I think I agree. There sure, there sure are some outbreaks so associated with homes. There's just not that many yet. It is a long fall and winter ahead. You know, it's only, what is it, September 20-something, the 25th. Like, I think it's too soon for us to breathe a sigh of relief. This is where we're going to require constant vigilance throughout the fall and the winter to really keep this out of the out of those long-term care facilities. And actually, when we look at the deaths in Canada, over, you know, around 9,000 deaths or so, about just over 80% of those were from people in long-term care homes. Like, that's how bad it was. That, that drove our deaths up. And, 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 
that's because, I mean, it's awful to talk about, but it's just a sad reality. We really didn't care much for our elders. We really, yeah. these were, this was a vulnerable population and these many of, the, not all, but many of these homes were underfunded and under-resourced and, and totally ill-prepared to deal with this. And, and sadly, lots of people died because of it. We remember that uh, as the second wave started uh, towards the end of August, beginning of September, if again, if you want to call it a second wave, I don't want to get caught in semantics here. Uh, it didn't seem to be re- the message didn't seem to be resonating with young people, even the fact that the majority of the cases were under the age of, of 40. Uh, their methodology was, well, you know, we don't get that sick. As, as you mentioned, it's not a big deal. That being said, um, <laughs> at the end of the day, even though it doesn't affect perhaps your health, and even if you don't care of the health of your parents or your grandparents, it still is responsible for bringing the world to a grinding halt. So is that message finally getting through to that demographic? I don't think so. I really don't think so. And listen, all in all fairness, I'm not here to shame and blame. I'm not here to slam dunk on millennials. Like, sure. I, I, I really am not. But I, 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 what I am going to do is actually maybe we should be a little more introspective, not you or me. Well, I can maybe me. I'll point fingers at myself sure. me and, and others. We should be more introspective and think, you know, how can we better reach these communities? How can we better target at-risk communities or, or cohorts who are at greater risk of getting this infection? And are there better communication strategies, uh, engaging community? Can we engage community leaders better? How do we drive behavioral change? Because, you know, what's not effective is, you know, a senior political leader or a senior public health leader standing on a podium in the mainstream media saying, don't go to parties. Like, yeah. it doesn't help. I mean, it's, it's a nice message. It's the right sort of the right message. But maybe we could take a harm reduction approach. Maybe we can approach this from a, a much smarter standpoint to actually help drive behavioral change. So, you know, yeah, it's clear that, that there's a lot of people in that in their, that 20-year-old cohort who are getting infected. But have we actually done anything to help prevent that? It's, you know, not as much. So, as so give us an idea. What, what could be done here, doctor? I mean, obviously, you know, nobody, everybody remembers what it's like. Nobody wants a senior standing over top of you, waving their finger at you, telling you what to do. Don't do that. And if anything, that's going to drive you to do it more. Well, exactly. Uh, that, so that, but that being said, uh, that is the reality. That is the truth. So how do we position that message so they get it? Uh, you know, my, my philosophy earlier on was, okay, maybe it's not affecting you or the, uh, the health of you or your family, but you're still going to living in a world that is being shut down because of your actions so how do we how do we get that gentle how do we give them the soft love i'm glad you asked no i i I think the harm reduction approach is a smart approach so a couple things i think we'd be naive to think that 20 year olds aren't going to get together of course they are so i think the message should be one of harm reduction hey you know what it's okay to get together but here's how you can do it in a manner that won't transmit COVID 19 like hang out outside don't go to that house party you know uh and and i would change policy to to facilitate this i would say listen i get it communities in canada you don't like people drinking in public but this is only the greatest public health emergency to hit the country in the last century we're going to allow public alcohol consumption in our parks that's Mm. okay guess why because it keeps people out of the bars or out of house parties so i would make temporary rules to allow for something like that to keep people outdoors rather than indoors. I would have targeted messages in age, language, and culturally appropriate manners, and I'd feed them through TikTok, through Instagram, through Facebook. Okay, like there's just ways to, and I'd use communication strategies that resonate with that age group. You know, humor, snark, you name it. Um, I'm not going to pretend to know because I'm not a communications expert, but there are lots of people that are whose full-time job is to drive behavioral change. Like those are the people that, you know, basically make me lease the car I lease or buy the clothes Mm, I buy, which are terrible. Like there's people whose full-time job is to drive and change our behavior. I I would, I would certainly enlist their help in, uh, in this realm, plus make some policy changes to make it safer. So I, I think there's some very low hanging fruit that we could use that we could that we could really, you know, lean on here to to make better policy. Uh, testing has always been an issue. Uh, at one time, we couldn't get anybody to go get tested. Now there, everybody wants to get tested. Uh, now it seems we can't process these testing, uh, this testing. How important is it we get really quick high speed testing that uh, at least separates the uh, symptomatic from the asymptomatic people? 
Yeah, so front-end and back-end issues. I, on the front-end, sure, we saw these big, big lines. Um, I think, the, and, and on the back-end issue, of course, we saw uh, some delays in turnaround time because of the, the tremendous volume of tests that were being done, and there might have been some issues with lab capacity. The back-end, I think there's been some pretty substantial investments to really improve capacity. And remember, we should also think we're doing you know 30,000-ish tests per day in Ontario. I think the goal, they said, is about north of 50,000. Uh, and so there's a bit of a ways to go. But on the other hand, it's a lot different than March, April and May when people were being turned away from testing centers and they were doing, you know, five ish thousand a day. So they've come a long way. They're not there yet, but they, they certainly have come a long way. There, my understanding is there have been investments in the, in the labs to really boost that capacity on the front end. Uh, a couple of things the, the province pivoted on their policy. They said, listen, if you if, if you have symptoms, no matter how mild, if you have exposures or risk factors, you can get a test. But if you're totally asymptomatic and don't have any risk factors or exposures, don't come get a test. That's reasonable. That's totally, totally reasonable. Um, Alberta, for example, re- released their data. Out of that group of people with no symptoms, no risk factors, no exposures, seven positives out of 10,000 tests. Wow. That juice is not worth the squeeze. It's yeah. just not worth the squeeze, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. So, you know, I think it's really smart that they did that here in Ontario, and I think that might shorten some of the lines. Then if they said, well, okay, for those of you who want to do it, great. There's some pharmacies that you can do it at. Here's a bunch, uh, and, and you can do it there by appointment. I, I think it's a reasonable plan. I think it'll shorten the lines, and it'll help with the capacity issues. All right, so what happens with the holidays, uh, Doctor? Specifically, well, it's not a holiday, but certainly a big day for the kids, Halloween, Thanksgiving, and then the Christmas holiday. The uh, Prime Minister said the other day uh, Thanksgiving might be a wash, but we might be able to save Christmas. Your thoughts on all of this? (laughs) I think we just have to be super careful, right? We know how this virus is transmitted. Indoor environments, people in close proximity with each other for prolonged periods of time. That's how you get it. That's how you get it, right? So um, limit our, we just have to limit our social gatherings, right? This is Thanksgiving. It's not the time to have your family come back from college and, you know, Aunt Janine come in from, you know, Wisconsin. Mm. Like, you just can't do that. You just, you have to keep it small. And whoever's under the same roof can, can be in that house. But you really don't want to bring other people under that roof. So that's, that's point one. And, and like, I know it stinks, but like, such as pandemic life. And if we all do the right thing, it's all going to be over in, you know, what if, I'm just going to say nine months, even though that's probably incorrect. Don't hold me to that. But, it, you know, we, we know the right thing to do. Uh, the next thing is Halloween. Yeah, Halloween party. Like, you can't have a big Halloween party. You can't have a big bash. You can't have people over. Like, it's just not acceptable. You know, can you do trick-or-treating? Listen, trick-or-treating is outdoors. You can imagine you put in some individually wrapped Mm-hmm. Uh, items on your doorstep. A kid can come by in a costume. They pick it up on their own and put it in their bag and walk away with their parents and everybody's happy. Something like that would be totally, totally safe and totally reasonable. What we don't want to have is, you know, indoor house, house parties or, you know, lots of different filthy, filthy hands putting their hands in the same buckets. We don't want anything like that. But if you have like individually wrapped things, you can handing them out with you know, barbecue tongs or, or just leaving them on the doorstep for kids to for kids to pick up as they walk by. I think that's fair. That's not going to hurt anybody. There's going to be a lot of Halloween candy lobbed around this year. Here, here it comes out to the front lawn. <laughs> Go from there. <laughs> I saw that thing you were talking about. Yeah. That that's a, seemed like a neat idea. I love that. Yeah. Did you see the one where the guy, he put a beer in it and it was delivering it to the front? Same sort of contraption. Oh, there you go. Yeah. No. What, and what we're talking about is basically like a, a large tube, like a paper towel tube, except super, super long. They use them for construction and he fastened it to his railing. He's got about four or five steps up to his front door and he just steps at the, stands at the top of the veranda, drops it into the tube and it fires down right into the little pumpkins. It's a great <laughs> idea. Yeah. Love it. So we can be innovative and creative. Uh, one last question, Doctor. Here we are at the end of week 28. When we were in week one, two, three, did you, could you have ever imagined this? Uh, you know what? Uh, some of us who've been following this closely sort of saw what was happening in Wuhan and other parts of the world. And we, we sort of had a hunch that it was going to spread pretty broadly early on. Um, and even well before COVID-19, I mean, there there's... Uh, many of us that work in that realm between infectious diseases, epidemiology, public health, global security, all these sort of interrelated fields who, you know, think about this and study this and predict this and look at policy and management. So 
we, you know, it's not nice to talk about now while we're in the throes of this pandemic, but like, it's going to happen again. Like this is, it's going to happen again. And uh, it's, you know, it sounds a little bit, you know, it's silly to say it now, but like, can we actually learn some lessons from this so that when the next one rolls around, we're much more prepared and have a global coordinated response? I think, I sure hope so. I really hope so. Dr. Isaac Bogosh has been with us, staff physician, general internal medicine and infectious disease associate professor, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto. You see him on the news all the time, and he's taking time to uh, speak to us today. Isaac, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Yeah, you too. Have a great day. Nice chatting. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, as kids have headed back to school and uh, are in their bubbles and in, and, uh, in their cohorts and such to, to try to make this all work and, and get them back into school after six months, uh, Canada schools are now debating removing common cold symptoms from the coronavirus checklist. Obviously, uh, uh, schools can very much controlled environments, and you've got to go through a checklist of uh, you know, you're feeling well or healthy temperature, that sort of thing, uh, as we go into the school. But now, I guess, and you know, if, you, if you're a parent, you know, every September, October, the kids come home with all kinds of stuff, whether it's seasonal, uh, flus or allergies or such. But, you know, the, those things just start to spread. And uh, some of those common cold uh, symptoms are keeping kids out of school because of the concerns in around uh, COVID-19, the long checklist of symptoms that Canadian schools and daycares use to screen kids has emerged as a major point of contention. And this week, British Columbia removed a number of common cold symptoms from its checklist, including runny noses and sore throats, saying those symptoms in isolation should not be keeping the kids at home. So how do you balance all of this? Let's bring in James Skidmore, professor, University of Waterloo, and he is with us now. James, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, obviously, lots of uh, symptoms here that can be confused. Uh, you know, we were worried before, even uh, the common seasonal influenza and confusing that with COVID-19. But now we're even talking about the common cold. Um, as we move on and, and this story continues to be fluid, do we need to adjust these uh, restrictions at all in your mind? Well, I think they will have to be adjusted because it's, um, it, you know, as, as you pointed out, these these symptoms can be uh, can be symptoms of numbers of things, right? And uh, I I actually just had a call with my own GP this morning. I've been complaining about a cough I have I've had for months, and she said, "Well, we want to get that fixed so nobody thinks you have the virus, right?" Mm-hmm. And uh, and I thought, yeah, I guess I should. Then she thinks I need to take allergy medicine, for example, and so maybe I have to do that. But it's but it but her point was a good one. You know, people will think, you know, that we have this sense that oh my gosh. Maybe they have COVID because they're they're somehow unwell, and if and if you have every symptom of every kind of common complaint down as on that list of possible um, symptoms, to keep kids home. Yeah, that's going to cause a lot of confusion, I think, for people. If if they can narrow down that list, I'd hope they would. I I, I respect that the you know the public health officials they they're the ones who really need to make that call and 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 make that clear for people. So how do we tell, how do we keep this balance? How do we tell between the common cold or the seasonal allergy or seasonal flu with COVID-19? Well, the, 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 it comes down to testing, doesn't it? That you need to be able to test quickly and efficiently so that you can know this. Um, I think one of the problems, of course, is that you know parents who, who were told, well, you can't bring your child back until you've had a test because they exhibited some symptoms. And then they spent, you know, hours waiting for a test and maybe not even getting it because the you know the, the the testing center was full for that day or what have you that that can be a real problem and i know at today's uh, press conference with uh, premier ford the first question he was asked was by a reporter was well what about these symptoms and what's going to be done there and, uh they said they're reviewing it um and i think i think they they i think they feel the pressure from people that that they find this is maybe too onerous. So, uh, on the other hand, I've had experts on that will say that, you know, uh, even though the kids are showing these these symptoms, they may not be testing positive. You could be putting kids back into school, back into the bubble, and uh, within a day or so, they're going to, or two, or test positive. Is is that hyperbole? Uh, is that uh, a hypothesis? Is that accurate? Is that speculation? Um, I guess we're all learning as we go here. 
Well, I think so. And I mean, it, of course, there's always the possibility that someone could um, be having a cough because they do have uh, the virus, right? And so uh, you, I, that's why I think you want really efficient testing. But uh, yes, yeah, some people will not test positive and perhaps they are uh, have the test. Again, I, you need to leave that to the to the healthcare officials. I guess one of my concerns is then, well, two concerns. One is for the parents and having to deal with all of this and trying to figure it out. But the second concern is then with the schools. For the schools then to sort through these things, every time they need to, to work through these kinds of issues and the regulations and, and figure things out, et cetera, all that time is, is kind of administrative in nature, and it takes away from teaching and learning. And so you, you want to create, you want, and, and, and I'm not blaming anyone because it's, everybody's trying to figure this out, but you want to create a system whereby you minimize the amount of time that's taken up on sorting these things out so that when the kids are in school, they're learning Uh, because otherwise they're just already, they're they're losing a lot of time due to other things, you know, learning how to wash their hands, lining up for washing their hands and things like that. So there are some, there are some um, impediments to their learning in school already. And so you you want to try to minimize these again with the, 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 the testing issue and the symptoms issue and whether that's really appropriate to, have such a long list of symptoms you need to work that out with the public health officials and then figure out a way to really streamline that process for everyone uh testing in the pharmacies uh this has to help you know, i would think so i mean if you, you the more testing you, yeah the, the, I, I just think we need to have testing everywhere <laughs> you know in a sense that we you need to create uh, you need to have to well you need to have fast and 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 accurate tests okay i can't speak to that but then in terms of setting up a system whereby you can implement that across a, a, a society across the province or the country then yeah you, you need to put your your best ideas behind that and and maybe using the pharmacies is a good idea i'm not sure how the pharmacies feel about it i i feel like i know the pharmacies have difficulties doing the flu shots when that started a couple of years ago it takes a lot of their time and they have to then, um, you know, accommodate for that. Doing the testing will be even more so uh, with the increased risk to their um, well-being, right, with people who might be positive coming in. It'll be fascinating to see, doctor, if it will be fascinating to see if, in fact, uh, the lineups are as long for the vaccination and are as long for uh, the flu shot as they are for the testing sites. What do you think? Well, I, you know, that's really not my area of expertise. I, I think just common sense would dictate that um, the, the testing may increase if people feel that they're, they've been exposed. Um, again, the, the, there the regulations have to be very clear as to who should be tested and when. And uh, they're trying to restrict that now from just anyone coming in to people who have some reason to believe they need to be tested. Um, maybe that's a good thing, maybe not. I'm not sure. But I I do know that the, the, everything I've read about the virus is that uh, having more testing available um, creates greater certainty because you, then you have accurate, you have, you have, you have more accurate data on to, as to what ju- just what is going on. James less Skidmore has been with us. Sorry, go ahead, James. No, no. I was just going to say less data, you're less accurate, more data, more accurate. Yeah, makes sense. James Skidmore has been with us, professor, University of Waterloo, uh, talking about which symptoms keep kids out of school uh, and often mistaken for COVID-19 or the flu or colds or allergies or such. James, thanks for the time. Be well. You're welcome. Same to you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. I don't know if that makes any sense at all.